This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Something Rhymes with Purple. This is a podcast all about words and language, and it's hosted by me, Giles Brandreth, and my friend, the world's leading lexicographer, she denies that title, but I think she deserves it, Susie Dent. Uh, are you qualified as a lexicographer in the sense that you have a, is there a such a thing as a degree in lexicography? Um, no, there isn't a degree in lexicography that I know of anyway, but I suppose I'm qualified through experience, but I don't have any letters I can add to the end of my name saying lexicographer LX. That would be quite cool. L-E-X, wouldn't it? That's at the end of my name. But no, and actually it's quite interesting because at the moment Oxford Dictionaries are looking for people who can go and work for them over a summer placement. So a paid summer placement to kind of start delving into the world of lexicography. And of course, I highly recommend it. And if they wanted, if someone listening to this suddenly thinks, oh, that sounds interesting, mm. they just go to a, a website, they go to the Oxford University Press, or where do they go to? Yes, I will retweet, actually, their link. But yes, if you look at Oxford University Press and then look for Oxford Dictionaries, summer placement, hopefully you will get there. We're both on Twitter, by the way. What is your call sign, or what do they call it, your handle your, on Twitter? It is at Susie underscore Dent. At Susie underscore Dent. And she does a a word of the day on there, which is always intriguing. And I do a quote of the day Mm. on mine, which is at Giles B1, G-Y-L-E-S-B-1. And I had to be Giles B1 because there were people who had taken my name. Are you constantly disgruntled because people misspell your name? Is it one way you just think, oh, I have to do this again? Why? No. It's a why. Can I tell you, I'm gruntled that they even Good. think about me. I'm oh, gruntled at all times and charmed. Nice. And it's uh, it's ridiculous. Uh, two things to say about it. One, I'm always reminded of you reminding me that spelling or uh, orthography, spelling, is a relatively recent innovation. And um, my name, Giles, is an old family. Lots of people in my family have been called Giles over hundreds of years. And so sometimes in the olden days, it was spelt Giles with an I, sometimes Giles with a Y. There was no consistency in the spelling. I always felt that Giles with a Y was a little bit pretentious, but that's the way it was. And so I'm sort of lumbered with it and I don't mind at all. And Susie is spelled Mm. S-U-S-I-E, not S-U-Z-I-E. Yes, S, not S-U-Z. But again, I get lots of different permutations, S-U-Z-Y, but I don't really mind either. Um, And my surname has got wrong quite often as well. So um, it's fine. What do they give you instead of dent? (laughs) Dent would be quite easy. I've had a Christmas card addressed to Susie Dead before. 
Oh, no. Let's just put it, <laughs> leave it at that. <laughs> yes. That's a bit grim. Anyway, look, today we thought we'd take a dive into the mailbag. Oh, yes. Uh, which we love doing because it's it's fun to hear from you. And we, we do get lots of uh, people communicating every week. And uh, this is an opportunity to deal with more questions than we can in a normal episode. Thank you so much for sending them, by the way. And do keep them coming in. If you want to be in touch, it's simply purple at somethingelse.com. Yes, and before we get to the questions, Giles, we had a couple of emails from Darren Verner and Ron Brown, who, after hearing the Flying Saucer song, do you remember in our UFOs episode, they were inspired to send us a link, as well, I have to say, many of my lovely followers on Twitter, uh, to Sheb Woolley's 1958 hit, and it's called The Purple People Eater. So I don't know if you remember this, but uh, let's take a listen to it. But be warned, it is really catchy. It might well become an earworm, earworm for both of us. Well, I saw the thing coming out of the sky It had a one long horn and one big eye Like a Mr. Shaking in the city It looks like a purple people eater to me It was a one-eyed, one-horned, flying purple people eater One-eyed, one-horned, flying purple people eater A one-eyed, one-horned, flying purple people eater Sure looks strange to me Came down to earth and he lit in the tree I said, Mr. Purple People Eater, don't eat me I heard him say in a voice so gruff I wouldn't eat you cause you're so tough It was a one-eyed, one-horned, flying purple people eater One-eyed, one-horned, flying purple people eater One-eyed, one-horned, flying purple people eater Sure looks strange to me Susie Dent, that is amazing we must work at this because we're going to do some more live podcasts later in the year. Yeah. And, and and next year too, I think. And we have to come on to the stage, <laughs> you and I, flicking our fingers, kicking up our legs and singing The Purple People Eater. We must. Okay. We, we must. We must it. work on it. But I just that reminds me of the itsy bitsy teeny weeny yellow polka dot bikini. Remember that? They're just they're so catchy those songs. I do. Perhaps we should both wear one of those as well. No, I mean, that's going, leave that That's to you. going too far, isn't it? <laughs> I definitely yeah. won't leave that to you. Uh, yes, I think it is. But what a perfect song for the podcast and for our loyal purple people. And um, I saw that Ron Brown is based in Finland because, Giles, your uh, and mine old friend Barry Cryer actually scored a number one in Finland with his cover of it. Did you know that? I think I did know that. I think he liked most about it. And quite right, uh, too. It's such a catchy song. Oh, my goodness. Well, thank you, uh, Darren and Ron, for sending that in. And if you anything that you think the purple people will be interested in reading or listening to, please email us. It's quite simply purple at somethingelse.com, something without the G. OK, let's get on with the questions. Hello, Susie and Giles. I love your podcast and I've been listening from the very start. I was listening to a different podcast recently and the presenter mentioned the word footage as in something caught on video. Please can you tell me why it is called footage? Many thanks. Kelvin Aplin, Painton in Devon. Oh, I love that. That Devonian accent, Painton, that was, that was brilliant. Uh, well, thank you, Kelvin, for writing in. And uh, Giles, you probably know this one, don't you? I'm not suggesting you're old. Well, I, I don't know. I imagine it's because in the old days it was film and film 
was, as it were, a length of film. You had a certain number of feet with which to make your film, actual length of film. Indeed, yeah. I remember in the early days, not like now, and it's all digital, you can go on endlessly, it was for a news report, it was three to one, and for a documentary, it was five to one, meaning you had three times the amount of footage than you might actually end up with on screen. So you couldn't really afford to make too many mistakes. Oh, that's so interesting. Well, no, you're completely spot on. So early 35mm silent film was measured in feet and frames. And we often talk about um, cutting room floor, don't we? That will end up on the cutting room floor. Well, the film was measured by length in cutting rooms. And I think there were 16 frames in a foot of 35mm film. And that gave, can you believe it, one second of silent film. Um, and because of that footage became this sort of, you know, natural unit of measure for film. And then it came to be used um, figuratively to describe moving image material of any kind, including, as you say now, digital. When I first started making television in the 1960s, it was all done on film. And you'd go to the edit and you would sit there with a, a machine cutting up with a razor blade, actually cutting the film and then putting it together with the equivalent of sellotape. That's, oh, that's how it was done. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, I was going to say it's not that long ago, but I do realise now it is 50 or more years ago. Anyway, our next question is about lurchers, and it comes from Steve Mansfield. Steve says, we've had lurcher dogs for over 30 years, but have never had a satisfactory explanation of why a hunting dog crossed with a greyhound should be called a lurcher. Uh, I love lurchers. I think they're absolutely beautiful. And, you know, I love the etymology of dog names because there's always something to discover about the nature or the appearance of the dogs themselves. So Steve is from Whaley Bridge in Derbyshire. Thanks, Steve. Well, the short answer I can give, Steve, and you will know uh, from your own lurcher dogs whether this is true, but in the early 16th century, lurch was a variant of lurk. So the idea was that lurcher dogs would remain furtively uh, in a place, possibly kind of waiting for uh, prey. So um, I imagine that lurchers then were used for um, for hunting and certainly they were used for lamping, which I really hate. But I think, Steve, that's where it comes from. Certainly it is a variation on, on lurk. So they're lurkers, really. So you can tell us whether that fits your wonderful dogs that you've had for such a long time. Should we go straight on to poaching? Let's go to poaching. And this is a global podcast, and so we get people from around the world getting in touch. Here's Sophie Peterson. Kia ora, Susie and Giles, and a big hello from Banks Peninsula, New Zealand. Earlier today, I was telling my dad about a chicken farm that I drive past every day and how atop the coop there always seems to be a cheeky seagull just waiting to poach an egg, if you'll pardon the pun. This got me thinking about the difference between poaching, i.e. eggs for breakfast, and poaching in terms of illegal hunting. I'm interested to know if there's any connection between the two. Love the podcast. Thanks in advance. Well, thank you, Sophie. What a wonderful voice and what high energy. My goodness, I, um, I like the sound of Sophie. Well, your poached eggs and um, poaching in terms of, you know, poaching ideas, poaching well, poaching and illegal hunting. What's Is there a connection? Yeah, so poaching eggs and poaching game, they seem vastly different in terms of activities, don't they? But they're both probably connected to each other. And the link is an old French word, pochier, or pocher, which means to enclose in a bag. Now, we still use poche for a pocket in French. And if you uh, remember the old proverb, never buy a pig in a poke, the poke there is also related to the poche, a pocket. So in other words, or a bag, don't buy a pig in a bag that you can't see because when uh, when the bag is opened 
a cat might pop out and you've let the cat out of the bag so you've actually <sighs> been sold a wrong one. Anyway, oh. back to the posh. Uh, poche meant to enclose in a bag and when you poach an egg, if you think about it, the white of the egg is forming a bit of a pocket, isn't it, or a bag for the yolk to cook in. Uh, which is a, a sort of lovely idea. And you can see that if you're actually looking at an egg that is being poached. And then the uh, the second poach to steal game, that emerged a little bit later. And the connection there probably comes from the pocket or the bag that a poacher would use to stuff his ill-gotten gains into. Ah, uh-huh. so it's the bag that is the It is the bag. The push. Yes. So the, the two are connected. How intriguing. Do you ever do you poach eggs? Uh, I'm not very good at it. I've, I've no. got all sorts of different contraptions over the years to try. You know, and I've used the vinegar. I've, I've bought those little sort of plastic round things and I never quite manage it. Now, um, but we, we, used, we used to have a successful egg poacher thing, thingy, like a, a saucepan with a tray on top and then little sort of places, little circles for each of the eggs. Uh, we lost that. I don't know where it's gone. And we've now tried these little plastic containers and I've tried floating the eggs and it doesn't seem to... So I love the idea of a poached egg, mm. but I don't ever have them. <laughs> no, no I'm, I'm with you. But while we're on pockets and, you know, in bags, if you pucker your cheeks, for example, uh, or if you have puckered cheeks, that's from the same source because the idea is that little gatherings in your cheeks are little pockets. Gosh. The other day, too, we were talking about the cod piece, and that was to do with a pocket as well, wasn't it? That's oh, to do with a bag. A bag, that was yes. a bag. A bag. The cod was the bag, and the posh is the pocket. Well, thank you for asking that uh, from Banks Peninsula, New Zealand. That's a long way away. That's probably our farthest away, our listener, isn't it? There? Do you think? Yes. Oh, we could be like um, the fantastic podcast that was Wittertainment, uh, where they always had a competition to see who was the furthest away, and they had some fantastic contenders. So let's see if we can do that. Who, yes. If you're who listening in Papua New Guinea, please get in touch. <laughs> yes. We, we would love that. We would. Who's up next? Up next is Jeremy, and hopefully I pronounce this correctly, Jeremy Ison. Dear Susie, I came with my family to the live show at London's Cadogan Hall recently. It was a highly enjoyable birthday outing for me. Afterwards, I was talking to Giles and asked him a question from my 12-year-old daughter Kate, but he didn't seem to know the answer. As you were not around, he suggested I write in. So, can you tell us why a doughnut sounds like it has nuts in it? Is it a misnomer or has the recipe changed over the years? Thank you and best wishes, Jeremy from New Malden. We go from New Zealand to New Malden. (laughs) We cover the world. This is a really intriguing question, isn't it, Susie? What's the answer? Well, it is, although it's an intriguing question. I'm not sure the answer is quite so intriguing or exciting. So um, I'm sorry, Jeremy and Katie, because or Kate, because you might be expecting some fantastic old recipe uh, for delicious nut doughnuts. But actually, it was simply because these ring-shaped pieces of sweet fried dough were much, much smaller and they were shaped like nuts. In other words, they were just tiny little nuts that you would see in the but nothing to do with the real nuts, you know, that we eat peanuts, walnuts, etc. Uh, so it's as simple as that. Uh, but actually, there's one further thing to throw in here, uh, which is that in slang, a nut or a doughnut was a source of pleasure or delight for a person, which, of course, if you are a fan of 
donuts, which most of us are, uh, makes absolute sense. And so if you said you were doing something for nuts, you were doing it for fun, for amusement. And nuts and cheese, weirdly, was something that was intended to please somebody else. So nuts have always been used in that sense of something really delicious. So I like to think that that came to play too, when you had the doughnuts, the sort of little nut-shaped pieces that were made of sweet fried dough. But in America, of course, they spelled doughnut D-O-N-U-T. And that was, I suppose, like the sort of playful spelling that you might get with tonight, T-O-N-I-T-E, which used to really get on my nerves. But it's been made popular by so many people, brands such as Dunkin' Donuts, for example, that it's become an accepted spelling. But I have to say, in America, the sort of standard version is still D-O-U-G-H. But I think that simplified American spelling is rather good. Do you? Yeah. As a child, I could never work this out, why dough, D-O-U-G-H, is pronounced dough, whereas enough, the same ending, O-U-G-H, you're pronouncing the off. Yeah, we talked about that the other day, didn't we? Um, the sort of strangeness and idiosyncrasy of, uh, of English spelling, which is why I love it. But, yeah, so dough itself, I think maybe... Possibly the O-U-G-H came from the fact that it was almost like a, a sort of baker's trough, really, because dough is all about kneading, um, goes back to an old English word meaning kneading. But in Russia, uh, a similar word means a baker's trough. So maybe we then sort of added the O-U-G-H to rhyme with that. Or possibly we were just following things like rough or enough, as you say, or la, for example. So, you know, lots of different theories. But what we tend to do, as you know, is we take a foreign word and then we make it look familiar by giving it the form or the sound of something we already know. And we've done that throughout history. So, yeah, I think that was to play there. There's a word, slough, and that means mm. what what a snake does when it gets it sheds its skin. It sloughs its skin. Yes. And is yes. that spelt S-L-O-U-G-H? Uh, that is. So there's, there's slough is the um, the sort of outer skin. You're absolutely right. And it's usually kind of diseased skin or tissue or whatever. And that goes back to the slough that meant in Germanic, it meant a husk or a peel or a shell. And yet the place, there's a town in the UK called Slough, which is spelt slough. Isn't that curious? It is. It's, a, it's the same word. Yes, and, but and then we also have the slough of despond. So, so um, a slough actually is a piece of soft or muddy ground, especially a hole in a road that's kind of filled with wet mud and makes it impassable. And is that spelt the same? Forgive me, the slough of despond, how is that spelt? The slough of despond, which came from John Bunyan, uh, that is spelt exactly the same as in slough. And also the same as slough, though it's a different word. It's a different with a different meaning. Yeah. Oh, I love the English language. It's too <laughs> it's too ridiculous for words. If you love the English language as much as we do, and if you want to support the show, uh, you can actually do so for a monthly subscription of one eighty nine a month, and that way you get all the episodes ad free, and you get discount codes on our merchandise ranges and access to the exclusive bonus episodes. And we've done episodes on Wordle and cheese, as well as uh, uh, someone we're doing a kind of A to Z of my favourite poets. We began with W.H. Auden. When we get round to Benjamin De Zephaniah, I don't know. I'll be a very old person by then. So take your pick. And to find out more and to start a seven-day uh, free trial, follow the links in the programme description. Should we, should we take a quick break, Susie? Yes, let's take a break. And then do you know what we're coming back to? Something that just sums you up, Giles. The word handsome. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. 
At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at sax.com. An official message from Medicare. A new law is helping me save more money on prescription drug costs. Maybe you can save too. With Medicare's Extra Help program, my premium is zero and my out-of-pocket costs are low. Who should apply? Single people making less than $23,000 a year or married couples who make less than $31,000 a year. Even if you don't think you qualify, it pays to find out. Go to ssa.gov slash extra help. Paid for by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Handsome is as handsome does. That's an interesting phrase. Are you familiar with that phrase? Vaguely, um, yes. So what does it mean? It's a proverb, isn't it? It is a proverb. I'm not sure quite what it means. Maybe it just means good all round. It looks good and delivers good because sometimes people can be deceptively handsome and then they turn out to be cads. What's the origin of cad? Cad, okay, so cad is a shortening of cadet. Um, So that gave us caddy, um, as in the golfing caddy, because they were sort of, you know, people who were in attendance, if you like. And cad also became associated with what were called kind of the the sort of low fellows who hung about Oxford colleges to, or or in fact, even public school colleges to give them anything necessary to help them. I mean, it was a real classist thing. And then so at Oxford, it was applied to the town lads of the same description. So it goes back to that distinction between town and gown, whereby those toffs, if you like, at um, Oxford and Cambridge and other illustrious universities would look down on people. And because they were the hangers-on or the helpers, they became associated with kind of low morals. You know, we've done that throughout history. Uh, So, yeah, it's, it's a sort of classist and slightly snarling term. Well, the word we're going to discuss now is the word handsome. And we've already been to Devon and to Derbyshire and we've been internationally, we've been to New Zealand. Let's go to the United States of America here. Hello, Giles and Susie. Ian here in Ohio, just having a morning cup of tea, and I was wondering where the word handsome comes from. Best, Ian. (laughs) I like the sound of Ian Rice. I can see him with his cup of tea. Bless him. Thank you very much, Ian, for being in touch. Well... Tell us all about the origin of the word handsome. For a start, it's spelled handsome, isn't it? H-A-N-D-S-O-M-E. Yes, and that is because it meant easy to handle or easy to control. Uh, So that was the idea, something that was sort of malleable or suitable, if you like. And if you remember, that also gave us the word buxom uh, or the same idea, because to be buxom was to be sort of pliant and compliant and pleasing and agreeable and suitable. It goes back to the German biegsam, meaning bendable. Uh, So something handsome was easy to handle. And from there, it meant something that was approved of or uh, seemly or courteous or gracious and then it was transferred to looks to somebody who was both gallant and also looked the part. So today you'd say someone was handsome it would mean they're very good looking yes but actually if you made a handsome gesture that could be considered a generous gesture something that is admirable. And fitting and elegant and stylish and all of that. And so the the sort of attractive and pleasing in appearance thing, that did come about by 
um, Shakespeare's time. So in, in Othello, he talks about a very handsome man and you can be a handsome woman, of course, as well. So, yeah, that's how it started. So it is actually all to do with the hands, so to speak. I'm picturing Ian there in Ohio having his morning cup of tea and he was wondering where the word handsome comes from. And I don't know whether he caught sight of himself because I think he probably is very handsome in, in you know, a reflection uh, uh, in, on something on the table. Maybe he has a mirror to hand. Oh. And he thought, yeah, well, this is a great word. I wonder where it comes from. Anyway, well, the rest of us actually are idiorepulsive, self-repelling. Uh, you are, I don't know where this comes from with you, Susie, because you are so uh, self-deprecating in that respect. It, mm. it is ridiculous. And it's a problem for people like me because I'm no longer allowed to tell you how beautiful you are because I risk being cancelled for making sort of personal remarks. So uh, I want you to know I'm thinking how beautiful you are. <laughs> Thank you. As I always did, but I'm no longer saying it because I know it's not acceptable anymore. Aww. Well, that's very sweet of you. Thank you. I will, I will absolutely take that. The next question comes from from Patricia Petow. Do you think I pronounced that correctly, Giles? P-E-T-O-W. Yeah. yeah. Hi, Susie and Giles. I very much enjoy your podcast. What is the etymology of the idiom, which I've heard on British TV programmes that I watch through BritBox? Who's he when he's at home? Uh, and this reminds me of all, all those sort of rhetorical questions like, who's she, the cat's mother? Um, all the things that our parents uh, would say. And, uh, and it's a good question, isn't it? Who's he when he's at home? So I did a bit of research on this one because I didn't actually know the answer immediately, Patricia. And I looked, as always, in the Oxford English Dictionary. And it says that this is used in interrogative phrases, i.e. questions, expressing frequently scornful doubt or a query about the identity of a person or thing. So I think the idea is simply that if you're questioning the identity of someone, you want to know who they are when they are at home, because that is who they are, when they will be at their real Cells, if you like. Um, and that's that's the only only answer I can really give. The OED doesn't really give a, a reason why. But the earliest example is 1845 from a novel. And who is Mr. Lucas when he's at home, said Owen, half sneeringly. Uh, so that's my best bet. It's just when you're at home, you are yourself. So the question is, who who is she when she's at home? In other words, who is the real person? I see that Patricia signs herself Patricia A. Petau, which is a clue, makes us think she comes from North America because people People in the UK don't do that. Uh, and, and indeed, the very fact that she refers to the British TV programmes she watches through the streaming service BritBox. I used to, as a child, love comedies written by uh, Frank Muir and Dennis Norton. Oh, yes, Dennis for- Norton. Yeah. radio and television, and they they were television presenters as well. And I do remember uh, overhearing them telling uh, an account once of, of Frank Muir, who'd got rather indignant at not being recognised in a, a, a restaurant, and saying to his friend Dennis Norton, you know, um, and they didn't seem to know who I was. And Dennis Norton replied, well, well, who were you? <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Anyway, Limerick. Regular listeners will know that part and parcel of the show is not just the brilliant etymology provided by Susie and the trio of words, but usually I pop in a favourite poem. And, well, Martin Jones is sending us a favourite poem of his. Hi, Susie and Giles. This is Martin from Dromouli in the Scottish Highlands. I was reflecting on the fact that only two words rhyme with purple, which reminded me that this was just enough for a limerick. So on that flimsy basis, and prompted by Susie's mention of the OED historical thesaurus, I came up with this ditty. An ephorous yark on the kerple can cause one to swaver and herple, and render one's cheeks for multius weeks 
melanic and livid and purple. Keep up the good work. Oh, well done, Martin. Oh, so good. He's got so many interesting words in that limerick, and you may have to take us through them. An ephorus yark on the kerple. Yeah. Ephorus, is that a word? E-double-F-E-R-O-U-S? It is. It means fierce or violent. And a yark is a sort of lash with the whip. So not very nice for the poor horse or its kerple, which, if you remember, is part of its rump. So it means a sort of, you know, a, a very fierce... A whip on the rump of a horse can cause you to swaver and herple. Now, herple, we know one of the rhymes for uh, purple uh, is to walk with a limp. To swaver is to stagger or totter and render one's cheeks, one's butt cheeks, I imagine, for multius weeks, for many weeks. Melanic, i.e. black, uh, linked to melancholy, which means black bile and melanoma, which means a sort of black tumour, if you like. Melanic and livid, you know, livid as in angry, but also livid as in purple and swollen and purple. So it's absolutely brilliant. Congratulations. I salute you. Well done. As you know, the limerick I like best is the very short one that's my favourite. There was a young man from Peru whose limerick stopped at line two. (laughs) On we go to the next question. This one comes from Andrew Griffiths. Hello, Susie and Giles. My name is Andrew. I've been uh, binging your podcast since I discovered it a few months back. I split my time between Cusco, Peru and Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I've tended to listen when I'm doing the dishes, at the gym, or perhaps on a long flight. So my question is, whenever I use the word vet in a conversation, I always feel the need to specify whether I mean veteran or veterinarian. But is there actually any connection between the two words? And if not, what is the origin of each? Thank you. Very good question. I've often wondered that. What is what is the answer? The answer is that veteran comes to or came to us via French from the Latin vetus or vetus, V-E-T-U-S, which means old. So that also gave us inveterate because inveterate is somebody long-standing, if you like. So this veteran is not, or this vet, if you like, is not related to the vet that is short for veterinarian. Always difficult to say and to spell. That goes back to the Latin veterinarius, which comes in turn from veterinae, meaning cattle. So it was all about looking after your cattle, which were prized possessions, particularly in medieval times and indeed in Anglo-Saxon times. So very, very different. One meaning old, the other meaning cattle. Mm, That's intriguing. Mm. There we go. And another mark of our international audience, which is fantastic. Well, again, the next one comes to us all the way from Arkansas. Dear Susie and Giles, greetings from Arkansas in the U.S., Love the podcast, and you're the perfect people to ask about an unusual word, leaf, spelled L-I-E-F. I first came across this word in a Jane Austen novel. It was used in the phrase, I would as leaf, meaning I would rather, or as we might say around here, I would just as soon. I assumed it to be an older word that had fallen out of usage. I was, therefore, surprised to see it used by a character in a detective story written in the 1930s and set in 1930s California with the same spelling and usage. I recently read William Faulkner's novel Sanctuary, also written in the 1930s, and was again surprised to see a character in 1930s rural Mississippi say, I'd as leaf. Can you shed any light on the origin of this word, or perhaps explain why it appears in such disparate works of literature? Is it still used in some regions? Many thanks, Corey Winters. 
Well, isn't that intriguing? He's clearly very well read, isn't he? Uh, well, he certainly is. And I know about Leaf because it comes from one of the oldest and most prestigious, really, of uh, families in English because it is related to Leaf. It is related to furlough, actually, as well. Love and belief. It's wrapped up in all of those. And um, really, it goes back to a Germanic word, leof, L-E-O-F, meaning dear or pleasant. So if you say, I would as leaf do something, you are saying, I would as happily, as gladly, I would rather do something. So I would just as leaf... I don't know, the example given in the dictionary is eat a pincushion. <laughs> I would rather <laughs> eat a pincushion than go for lunch with you. I would just as leaf eat a pincushion. Um, so that kind of explains most of its uses. But what I was looking up in the OED is the dates, because that is what Corey is saying here, is that actually, you know, it's got a really wide, well, a long chronology. And uh, he says he first came across it in a Jane Austen novel, uh, but he's seen it in the 1930s and so on. So, uh, yeah, it's actually, it was first used in a addressing a person in the ninth century. So it's one of the oldest, oldest words that we have. And it's mentioned in Beowulf as well. And you will find in, again, sort of 10th century, you will find leaf is me, especially in Scots, dear is to me, for example. And then in lots and lots of different constructions. But actually, it goes all the way to I think the latest mentioned here is 1883. So it doesn't seem to have made it into the 1900s. So there's one here for 1891, but not much further. So it seems to kind of stopped, really. But then what Corey is saying is that he's seen it set in the 1930s. So Corey has done a bit of work for the Oxford English Dictionary, and I need to send in what he has found, because they don't seem to have anything beyond, as you say, the, age of the 18, end of the 1800s. But a really, really important work. Uh, word in Anglo-Saxon society and as I say linked to belief and to love. It's intriguing to me that he came across it in the works of Jane Austen and I marvel that Jane Austen was writing now well over 200 years ago and yet she remains hugely popular. People read Jane Austen and she's accessible and I, I'm, I'm puzzling about what that is. I mean it must be because she writes about the human condition rather than events because uh, I mean she lived through the Napoleonic Wars and yet I think makes no reference to the events of, of the time in her novels at all. Of course I think there are naval officers in, in the stories and two of her brothers became admirals but her sphere is quite limited, didn't she? I mean, she spoke of the little bit two inches wide of ivory on which I work with so fine a brush as produces little effect after much labour. But in fact, the effect after much labour is still being felt by us more than 200 years later. No, it's not lovely. No, you're absolutely right. What are you reading at the moment? Are you reading anything? You've got a book on your bedside? Uh, I don't have a bedside book on the go because I am absolutely knee deep in editing my own book. And so it would be, a, it sounds ridiculous, but I sort of feel like it's a busman's holiday to sort of keep looking at, at text. So by the time I get to bed, I am so ready for sleep. I'm so dormative that um, I don't actually lift a book to my eyes. I just conk out. How about you? Well, I'm always ready for sleep, but I always read a little bit before going to sleep. And at the moment, I'm finding it difficult to go to sleep because I'm reading such a fascinating and brilliant book by uh, an American journalist called Virginia Cowles. And this is a book that was published many years ago. It's been reissued by Favour and Favour. It's called Looking for Trouble. She was a journalist in the 
1830s and 1940s that covered the Spanish Civil War and the beginning of the Second World War. And the reason I'm finding the book so gripping is it's beautifully written and it's a fascinating account of the Spanish Civil War, which I've always found very difficult to understand, and about the early years of the Second World War. But the echoes within this book of what is currently happening in the Ukraine are so powerful and interesting that I find it. uh, And so anyway, I recommend to anybody this book, reissued by Faber and Faber. It's an old book by this journalist. She was born 1910, died 1983. I came across it because I happened to know her daughter. And I'd heard of this journalist, Virginia Cowles, but I didn't really realize what she'd done. But I got this book out by chance. And I literally cannot put it down. Give us the title again. Looking for Trouble Okay. by Virginia Coles. I really do recommend it. It's, it's history, but it's history that reminds us that sometimes history appallingly seems to repeat itself in certain ways. Anyway, cheer us up with three intriguing words. Okay. Well, I'm not sure these are particularly cheery, but perhaps quite useful. Uh, the first is, well, we can't, I really can't get our purple people to talk enough because we love hearing from you. But should there be somebody in your lives who actually does talk too much, you can say that they are polylogizing. <laughs> Poly, P-O-L-Y-L-O-G-I-S-E. They are simply talking excessively to polylogize. Then the second one, now this started off as a bit of a medical condition, but I think again, it sort of fills fills a gap for some people in our lives. Witzelsucht from German means a feeble attempt at (laughs) humour. So it's the kind of joke that only amuses you and no one else. Witzelsucht, so it's W-I-T-Z-E-L-S-U-C-H-T, a feeble attempt at humour. Witzelsucht. I feel I'm guilty of both of these. Uh, this is awful. <laughs> I'm definitely apologizer and I'm I'm afraid Witzelsucht is my <laughs> go-to form of humour. What's and the, the third, third one? one? It's all I'm about name this. dropping. No, oh, no. no. No, no, I just <laughs> That's quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> it's um syphilate. Syphilate. Oh. Nothing to do with syphilis. I'm relieved to hear that. To syphilate, this this um, goes back to the French word siffleur, a, a whisperer. So somebody who would be a prompter off stage, for example, giving cues. To syphilate is to speak in whispers. Oh, that's so lovely. you could say, "Stop syphilating behind my back," for example. Yeah, yes, indeed. Uh, but how irritating if one was a, a polylogizer who also syphilated. <laughs> <laughs> that's very true. That would be really serious. annoying. Oh, those are three fantastic words. I've written them down. That, that's the only way I can remember your words, you know, because otherwise it's in one ear out the other, I'm afraid, unless you write it down and keep using it. Well, given that you have mentioned this polylogize, and I do realise... I talk too much. I often wonder why my parents sent me away so young to boarding school. <laughs> I used to think it was because they didn't like me. Now Aww. I think that because I, I think they did like me, but I just did talk too much and I think they needed some peace. So they <laughs> sent me off to boarding school. I've chosen a very short poem this week because of having said so much. And it's appropriate to us, Susie, because it's about the pleasures of friendship. And it's written by a major female poet, Stevie Smith. The pleasures of friendship are exquisite. How pleasant to go to a friend on a visit. I go to my friend, we walk on the grass, and the hours and moments, like minutes, pass. That's lovely. 
That's gorgeous. So it's a nice short poem and says it all. You know, just the easy. I like it because it's about the easy pleasures of friendship. Yeah, no, I agree. And uh, they're ones to hold on to, aren't they? Well, as always, uh, we would love you to recommend us to your friends and to keep getting in touch because these kind of episodes, I have to say, are some of my favourite because we love hearing from you. And um, the email, as Giles said, is purple at something else.com. Yes, indeed. And if you fancy joining the Purple Plus Club for bonus episodes, etc., do investigate that. Uh, something Rhymes with Purple is a Something Else production produced by Lawrence Bassett and Harriet Wells with additional production from Chris Skinner, Jen Mystery, Jay Beale, and best wishes to Phoebe Webb, who emailed us just to say that she allowed herself a smile when on a bus in Ireland she went past the river... Gully! There we are. He always makes a splash and runs quite deep. An official message from Medicare. A new law is helping me save more money on prescription drug costs. Maybe you can save too. With Medicare's Extra Help program, my premium is zero and my out-of-pocket costs are low. Who should apply? Single people making less than $23,000 a year or married couples who make less than $31,000 a year. Even if you don't think you qualify, it pays to find out. Go to ssa.gov extra help. Paid for by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services.